production. Our regional Queensland business showcase wraps up this week on the sunny Gold Coast, where we meet two giants of the business world. Zarafa's coffee founder, Kenton Campbell, and nutrition warehouse founder, Grant Mayo. And you will never guess what he was before becoming an entrepreneur. It's a curious episode 574 of the 12-year-old award-winning small business big marketing podcast. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Timbo Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of high-stakes marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, and I have an insatiable curiosity for uncovering marketing strategies that help businesses just like yours to grow. You, so much more importantly, are a motivated business owner, and you are well and truly ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire I think it absolutely deserves to be, and that's why I do what I do. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D, dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Following the end of this regional Queensland series, which I hope you've been enjoying, oh, we have got some big guests coming up. Check this out for the coming weeks. A heart surgeon who's trying to keep people off his operating table, past captain of, I think, the greatest sporting team in the world, (laughs) who's on a mission to save the oceans. I'll let you guess who that is and what the team is. Luxury Escapes founder joins us. I keep saying he's going to join us. He absolutely is. He's back from London. Uh, The genius behind the Dollar Shave Club. Exciting. Plus, past guest John Warrillow is going to rejoin us to discuss his New York Times bestseller, Built to Sell. Awesome book, written written a few years ago, still as relevant as ever, and he's going to step us through how to build a business to sell for the most amount of money. Just a reminder to email me if you'd like this regional roadshow to come to your part of Australia. So if you're in regional New South Wales or Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, email me, tim at timreid, reid.com.au, and say, hey, come down my way. I'd love that. And then I'll send that off to the powers that be. Now, this week, we head to the Gold Coast, where we catch up with former world champion bodybuilder and 1997's Mr. World. Yeah, he's one of those, like, big buff guys. His name's Grant Mayo, who traded in the dumbbells for a life of entrepreneurship by starting Nutrition Warehouse, which has 80 stores nationally and turning over 100 million bucks a year. But first... Let's meet Kenton Campbell, who is the founder, another business giant, by the way, on the Gold Coast, the founder of Zarafa's Coffee. Think a local version of Starbucks, but infinitely better. Zarafa's has 73 locations nationally, turns over $200 million annually, and employs 2,000 staff. And Kenton himself was featured on ABC TV's Australian Story. The guy is quite a character. You're going to love Kenton's business insights as he shares five pivotal moves that got him to where he is today. Now, he's a humble guy, not one for blowing his own trumpet too loudly. In fact, he prefers to be called a mistake maker as opposed to an entrepreneur. So I started off by asking him what he meant by that. Mistake maker came because everybody said, what's an entrepreneur? Are you an entrepreneur? What defines you as an entrepreneur? And probably over the last uh, 25 years, I just realized that I was a person willing to make mistakes, but none big that were going to ruin me. If I go back to, say, a few stores that I've opened, uh, one in New South Wales and even one in Post Office Square in Brisbane, they're both not open today. I had to close both of them. It was the wrong site. It was the wrong fit out. It was the wrong landlord. I couldn't have screwed up more if I'd tried. And at the time, it really hurt because, especially Post Office Square, it was only my third store. (laughs) So, um, you know, I was up in the midst of taking all the fit out back out to reuse it in a couple other stores that were going to be going. And back then, we used to have each letter separate. So Z, A, R, R, A. (laughs) So long, and and coffee. (laughs) And, and um, I was up in the ceiling space taking down each letter from behind and then saying, yep, next letter. And I literally started to bowl because I couldn't believe that 
the article in the Courier Mail maybe three weeks before or four weeks before was the dark horse of the coffee industry comes to Brisbane. And I was like, I'm not such a dark horse now. <laughs> but I learned. I learned about due diligence. I learned about checking things out because the lease is everything, because the site is everything. And nothing's forever, but it is important. Did you not have a sense? Uh, it was your third store, so you're pretty early on in your Zarafa business journey. Was there not some kind of gut instinct? You mentioned like lease, location, landlord. These are some significant things. Did, did nothing kind of trigger you back then to think, oh, hang on, that doesn't feel right, but I'm going to go ahead with it anyway? Well, I depended on other people's point of view. One was the landlord and how long we could trade and that would be good on the weekends. I never went up there on the weekends. And I, look, at the time I felt like an idiot, but I got out of the, the lease as well because of it. So, you know, it's a long time ago and it doesn't hurt as bad, but I, I, it sucked at the time. And I thought, how can I be so stupid? And guess what? It was bad. And, and between that and Warringah Mall, you know, our first entry into New South Wales, that was over 15 years ago. It, it sucked, you know, pulling it out and spending, you know, a lot of money. It had been hundreds of thousands of dollars between both of those and a lot of time and resources wasted. But that just changed my whole mind on what due diligence really meant and what looking at each site really meant. So, I mean, that's a pretty big explanation of it, but mistake making, but never putting me totally under. So the other two stores carried it. I had a good relationship with the bank told them right away what was going on. They were very supportive, believe it or not, because I was honest with them and said, look, that's what I'm going to do, this is my plan. And I got on with it. I want to talk about some other pivotal moments in the Zarafa's journey. Tell me about losing your business in the United States before you even started the Zarafa's. <laughs> Had to lose to, to grow, right? Um, well, look, that's going back, obviously, over 25 years ago, probably 26 years ago now. And... What had happened was I had subleases with espresso carts in Seattle and I'd do one of two things. I'd either keep it for a little while and resell it as it had grown and had some numbers or I would uh, sell it from the out- outset, um, you know, get a cart, get the site, sell it. And some I kept for a number of years and they're all in front of a small chain of grocery stores and it was about three months before my subleases were up. And the owner called me in and said, look, I've got some good and bad news. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, "Um, the good news is I'm going golfing the rest of my life. I've sold to IGA. The bad news is I'm not going to renew your sublease in three months. And I thought I'd give you a heads up. Crying in business, it does happen. And this was another time I did. I I was emotionally distraught. I just paid off some of my bills. You know, I just got to the point, and this was after almost uh, three years, you know, where I thought I was going to kill it. And it wasn't until I was handing over the last espresso cart back, in fact, the last week, and it was two people walking by, and I changed my attitude and said, look, I'll get on with something else, you know, I'll do something else. And literally these two guys kept coming back for the next week, and at the end of the week they gave me a card, and they said, you wouldn't want want to come to Australia, would you? (laughs) What's your schedule like? And I went, went, oh, let me just see here. Um, Actually, I'm pretty open, yeah. And um, it wasn't until about nine months later, I literally had to call him up and say, look, I've got five job offers, which I didn't. And I was uh, down in Southern Oregon, uh, dredging for gold in the Illinois River. And my my nana said, are you going to take this job on Australia or what? And I was like, yeah, I better. I was on food stamps. I was bad. I mean, I was, I was, I was at the, you know, I loved it though. I mean, it was in Southern Oregon, um, having a good, good time doing a lot of nothing. But, um, I called them up and I, I basically put it to them, you know, that I have all these jobs and I need to decide. And they said, well, let me call you back. And literally the next day, they said, we've got a ticket one way. Come, come now. Your second pivotal moment you talked to me about was realising the coffee market hadn't happened yet in Australia. Now, this is clearly, again, 25 years ago, but um, how did you discover that? And what a great discovery it was. Well, it was March 25th, of 96 and I happened to be up in Brisbane I just trademarked the logo I had to take the train up we only had one car and and Rachel had it that day so I took the train up and I was in Eagle Street and something and we all know in Brisbane when that's hustle bustle it's it's you know hundreds of people walking across 
And I walked down, I was walking back to the train station, and people must have thought I was crazy. I think I started to air mount the light pole because I looked around and nobody was carrying around coffee. I didn't realize it was that bad, like as in the market had not happened. Um, the, the little bit of work that I'd done for the company over the, the month that I was with them, you know, I didn't really look around that much until that point in time. But when you see that many people in a CBD, and I couldn't see for five, ten minutes, not one, and then one had styrofoam, and it could have been a soup roll, I know, you know, a styrofoam cup that looked like it was a coffee cup at the time. And um, honestly, I got excited. I thought, my God, this is my chance. I, I wonder whether I'm a Melbourne guy um, from birth. I wonder whether that would have been a different story if you had landed in Melbourne or, for that matter, Sydney, where the coffee culture, I thought, had been around for decades, maybe less so in the hotter climate like, like mm-hmm. Brisbane in Queensland, but... Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, you'd identified something. And, and coming from a city like Seattle, the home of Starbucks, where I'm guessing people walk mm. around with intravenous kind of drips in their arm of Starbucks coffee. Yeah, there's one every couple of blocks. That's right. Uh, some there's ones across from each other. You know, I, I think that that might have been part of it, but I still think you would have found 25 years ago there was no takeaway coffee. Even in Melbourne, there would have been a lot of coffee shops doing a great job. And I mean, the influence of Melbourne and the Greeks and the Italians... Even when I came over, I was already making flat whites and doing iced chocolates with real ice cream. And I took the specialty coffee industry that I knew and I switched it up a little bit to be there for the Australian market, which is what the bigger guys didn't do when they came. They came with a brand and a brand alone, and that's why they continue to suffer, in my opinion. And so you're talking about the Starbucks, the Gloria Jeans, the Hudsons of the world? Yep, they, they, especially Starbucks, they came with the brand, and that was it. That was originally. Um, today, they, they in Australia, I think they suffer from that same stigma where... Look, they're, they're huge. You know, most people in business would love to have that business and that problem, but we strive to make a perfectly individually you know, great cup of coffee every day. And How do you do that? Because, yeah. I mean, I haven't grown up again with Zarafas coming from Melbourne. You guys are mainly in Queensland. Queensland, New South Wales, WA, there's a few, yeah. But how have you overcome that, I'm going to call it the cultural cringe, where, again, Melburnians look at these chain stores of coffee and it's like... It's just not a thing. We have our own little cafe or hole in the wall where we go yep. buy our coffee every day, whereas you seem to have overcome that with Seraphas and it doesn't mm. feel like a chain. What's your secret there? Well, it's the cart mentality that I brought over. So being in a suppressor cart, I only had good coffee in my attitude and they both had to be good because that's all I had. So I think a little bit of that American that's left in me was the service side. Um, and I've been here 26 years now and came home when I came to Australia. But the one thing that stayed with me is nobody cares about my bad day. And I'm going to give them a good cup of coffee and I'm going to ask them to come back every time and give them a reason to. That'll get you a long ways. In fact, that's what we did. I figured if I had the good product and the good service, I could fix everything else. And that's exactly what we've been doing for 25 years and we're still doing it today. Tim, the other big thing probably is we're a training organization more than a franchise operation. The training was never-ending because these people stay, if we're lucky, four years, and then they go on after high school or university, and this is a stepping stone industry for that, and I love it, but a lot of people don't stay, and so we're always having to replace them, and we don't replace them a month before, two weeks before the person goes. We replace them probably a year um, before they go so that other person has the chance to not train on our customers but to train with the person they're are, are you talking about your franchisees or just staff? Talking about staff in general, yeah. We are, we are a training organization. We can't call ourselves a university, but we're probably the closest thing to a, that sort of establishment. We, we take it very seriously. The continual training, we will never stop training. It's, it's a never-ending story for us. And once we realized it and embraced it, I think that's one of the biggest things. And it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard logistically in this country, and it's hard because we know our staff... Um, even though they're going to be really great for those three, four years, they're eventually going to move on, and, and that's what we want. We, we know we're always going to be that stepping stone for Australians, the young ones going off and becoming something bigger and better. And saying that, we've got a lot of our staff that turn into franchisees, so that's how I get to it. We either lose them into the brand or, or they go on and become a professional. You've been in Australia almost half your life, uh, give yeah. or take, you have been tainted by the Australian customer service standard, which, you know, you and I both know does not shine a light on the American customer service standard. What can you teach us? Just give us a couple of insights to what we 
as a whole, as a race, could be doing better no matter what industry we're in, whether it's retail, industrial, commercial, uh, online. What can we be doing better? Well, I think there's a few things that come to mind. One is it's free to smile and say hi, and it's also free to ask them back and maybe even see how their experience was. doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, were you helped um, sufficiently? Was that food good? Uh, was the coffee okay or was your, your you know, $200 dinner okay? <laughs> and along the way, in those cases, at the right time. And then, you know, smiling at somebody and meaning it. I, I'm always big on edification, so always look for something in each person uh, as an individual and exemplify that in your conversation and mean it. For us, we have to because we have relationships at arm's length. For a very long time, I've seen kids get raised in front of me and have kids here in Australia. And when you have those such relationships, you can't be fake. You need to be sincere. And I think the final you know, point is don't make your bad day other people's bad day, including the staff you work with. Um, because people will see that stuff, you know. I can't swear on this, can I? <laughs> you can. <laughs> I can. Well, you know, nobody gives a shit <laughs> whether you've had a bad day. Um, I don't. When I'm, when I'm paying, I don't. I want you to grin and bear it. And I want you to fake it the whole time. I don't care whether the kitchen's being assholes. I don't care whether you've got issues and problems at home because guess what? Welcome to life. We've all had those problems. We do have those problems. And so I think that it's better for the team. It's better for yourself because you'll get through it. Use it as a time to get away from whatever you're doing. And if you've got a problem that's that bad, uh, discuss it with somebody. If it's about the business, discuss it with somebody within the business. Don't leave it. But don't make it the customer's problem because all you're going to do is push them to the competition. Whether you know your coffee or your product can be really, really good, but it won't it won't be good enough to get past um, a really bad attitude. I mean, there's very few soup Nazis that get away with it. Another pivotal <laughs> moment in your business journey, Kenton, was the realization that franchise isn't a four-letter word. What's the four-letter? Yeah. What's the four-letter yeah. word, and what was the realization? Tim, when I first looked at how to grow. One of the things I never thought I'd look into was franchising. I thought it was a four-letter word. As in, a, in other words, it was a swear word to me. And when I actually took a whiteboard session and I put, if I have 10 stores and I own them all, or I have 10 stores and they're franchised. So I, I lined them both up. And on one side with the franchising, I realized I could have other people help and support me, that uh, the share in the buy-in and the capital resources would allow me to not be stressed. You know, down the line, the growth, because that first franchisee would want a second store eventually, so you wouldn't have to talk people into growing again and again. You eventually have those people within want to grow with you. And on the other side, it was basically the opposite. It was you're going to have to do everything yourself. You won't have money. And even after that 10 stores, you're going to have to put it all back in. The banks won't believe in you for quite a while while you're growing, and I kind of envisaged, envisaged the home life not very good either because, uh, you know, I either wouldn't be there or and wouldn't have the money, and the stress that that puts on your personal life can be tremendous. And, and so literally after doing the soundboard, I, I just went, okay. And in 1998, they brought out the Code of Conduct here in this country, and I actually looked into what it what it said and what it meant for the industry. And I thought, no, this is good. There's a set of rules, set of guidelines for both franchisee and franchisor. And to me, there's no way with our, without our franchise partners, and they're a congruent part of our business. They make most of the decisions operationally, if not all of them. We're consultative with them. And because they've got buy-in, they mean what they say and they they... They say what they mean and they do it because they have to, to some degree, because they've bought in literally financially. And so although we've got some great staff and great team members, we do. We've got a store in Kalgoorlie that's corporate. It's in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's got gold coming out of it, but it's in the, the asshole under the earth, to be honest with you. It's, it's, I've been there quite a few times. I'm just like, but we do have great staff, but it's very, very hard when somebody's sick if you've had six days in a row, you're going to go get somebody else in. It's not my business. It's not the same. It just it never will be, and I understand why. Um, although we've got, as I said, our team is great. 
they're wonderful. But to have the big logistical problem that we have in Australia, we can't just send people out quickly to, to open up a store. So franchising has changed uh, the whole aspect of not just my life, but I think our, our, our team here at head office and also all our franchise partners, they, their lives have changed and it's it's been a great partner. I could not ever think of going back. I, I wouldn't go back if you said own them all, especially in Australia, I'd say, no way, you're mad. You know, before I thought this would be good, but now I'm absolutely mad not to do it with a franchise model. Not our, not our business, not our industry. I don't think so. I know a, a, another pivotal moment for you too, alongside realising that franchising is a fantastic business model for your purposes, was taking your partner along for the ride. Was there a, a moment where you weren't and that was causing a lot of pain? I've, I've used the word asshole a few times and I was, I was basically because of how much I was working. I mean, anybody that's worked for themselves and started up a company, um, I was working nights and weekends and doing the business for a period of quite a few years, doing at least 90, more like over 100 hours every single week. And I was working for somebody else to pay for you know, the bills and, and put in. And it would have been you know, entrepreneurial hell is what I took you know, Rachel through. And... I started to realize that as I matured, I mean, again, I was in my mid-20s and she was in her young 20s and it took me probably about, you know, 10 years and 10 years too late, you know, in some ways, you know, you can't go back and, and re- you can reflect, but you can't change. So when I realized it, I just, I just said, look, why don't you come with me and I'll show you because she was in administrative side of the business for years, but when it came to know growing the business uh the the buildings that we needed to buy or or fit out or where we were going to go and why we're going to do it and the money we needed to spend you know your expectation on your partner your life partner your business partner can't be just understand because i'm I'm an awesome entrepreneur and that should be good enough It, it needs to be hey you you might not agree you might not understand it might bring you a bit of anxiety but i'd rather you know and at least have knowledge of what's going on so you're not in the dark. And once I started doing that, um, it started changing everything, I think, not just for me, but especially for her because she wasn't blind to it. It's a communication challenge. So you see so many business owners who, you know, if they're not in partnership with their life partner, uh, they're coming home and they're full of, you know, the troubles and woes of a business owner, you know, it's hard. And often because you're at the top of the tree within your business, you may not have someone to talk to. So I think the learning there is, is do communicate. You might think, oh, my partner doesn't understand my business or what I do or this, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's that sort of release and they feel a sense of belonging as well. So, uh, and everybody wants to have a purpose, you know, Tim, everybody and everybody does. I mean, you know, I don't run this company day to day. You know, I've got a CEO now. I've got people that are, are here that we empower, give the tools, and they stay, we stay out of their way. I, I'm very good at autonomy. I'm not in anybody's grill. You know, my expectations are, are they doing the job and are they doing it well with others? And, and so it's making sure they're along for the ride too. I was so far out the front at one point that nobody could see me and I couldn't see them and I'm including, you know, my, my wife, my life partner, and, you know, mother of my, my boys and also my team here at, at Zarafas. You know, I was so out the, far at the front and my expectations were so high that it was wrong and people were stressed because I, I thought, I'm gonna, we're going to build this thing, we're going to go. And when you, when you do it basically from nothing, that's already a big achievement. <laughs> but then to also say, well, I'm going to do something really that you should take two or three generations to do, that takes a lot out of everybody and it took a lot of me. What it did for me was I didn't get to enjoy it as much as most people would think. I was taking myself for a ride as well, but it was a wrong ride. It was that I was going and going and going like a dog after its tail. And then what woke me up was realizing that more money doesn't fix anything. It basically causes uh, more issues in the long run because you've got to figure out what to do with it. And that's another business in itself. And so the expectations that I'd have for myself needed to change anyway, and I didn't get back up and chase my tail anymore. And I made sure Rachel was there all along the way. In fact, now our boys, as they're coming in the business uh, on their own merits, they're slowly coming on and I'm doing the same thing. I'm saying, I need you to understand, come in the meetings. At first you're gonna go, what the hell? I mean, they all thought we just had coffee. <laughs> Are you going for, you're going out to just have coffee? <laughs> oh no. And now that they're older and they're in the business to some degree, 
they're all like, oh my God, you know, there's a lot more to this than I realized. Our eldest worked four and a half years for a franchisee while he was going to uh, uni. And he came back after the first couple of weeks and just said, oh my God, I'm, I'm sorry. I used to think you guys just had it easy. <laughs> you know, wow. Kenton, uh, it's a great story, mate. I'd love to explore it further another time because not only is, is the Zarafa's uh, journey incredible, you're, you're also embarking on some other adventures, which I'd love to hear about. But right now, zarafas.com is where you can find uh, what Kenton has been up to these past 26 or so years. And buddy, thank you so much for sharing. Easy, Tim. I really appreciate the opportunity and you know, we're looking to grow Australia-wide. We're looking for good franchise partners. Uh, we're not like them. Uh, we, uh, you know, we're one of the good guys. And you know, go ask our franchisees first. Uh, hopefully, you know, we'll be in Melbourne sooner than later. And uh, we will, we will fit in. We we know where we belong. If you do buy a franchise, just mention Timbo, and uh, he'll look after you and me. Thank you, Kenton. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, team. Zarafa's coffee founder, Kenton Campbell. I love Kenton's take on customer service. Like he said, it's free to smile and say hi. <laughs> totally true. Plus, his tip on looking for ways of edifying your customers is simple and clever. Now, check out my Marketing in Minutes podcast. It's a little shortcast that I do on the listener app where I share an idea around improving your own approach to this all-important part of your marketing. And I love that Kenton sees himself as a mistake maker as opposed to an entrepreneur. Maybe it's time to own your mistakes, right? Learn from them and then move on. I try, I try to do that. Stop beating yourself up if you do make one. Just don't make it twice. Certainly don't make it three times. What grabbed your attention? Let me know by calling the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480 Okay, let's meet another Gold Coast business legend in Grant Mayo, who is the founder of Nutrition Warehouse, a retail bricks and mortar supplements business with 80 stores nationally, employing 400 staff and turning over this year $100 million. In his younger days, Grant was a world champion bodybuilder who hit the top of his game when awarded the title Mr. World. Uh, I suggest you Google Grant Mayo and just see how big and toned and ripped he really was. Now, we cover plenty of ground in this chat, including how to get an idea to market, the power of the right brand name, risk-taking, and so much more. I started off by asking Grant how big did he get, how far did he get, and what drove him to get that big? Oh, great questions there. Yeah, three big questions. How big did he get? Well, a bodybuilder would say never big enough. Always wanted to be bigger, better, and obviously, um, you know, be very competitive and beat everybody. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But I did achieve Mr. World, and it's something that uh, to this day I'm very proud of and um, never thought I would probably do that when I started bodybuilding. What drove me to do bodybuilding? Uh, great question. Look, I, I was never. I was always doing some sports when I was younger: cricket, soccer, just the normal sports. A few few mates said, "Hey, let's go to the gym." And you know, I was at the time twenty one uh, years old, five foot seven, ring wet, at sixty kilo, if that, fifty five. It's a pretty skinny kid. And I thought, well, what's the gym? I didn't even know much about it. So I ended up going along with the boys to the gym. And after a couple of months, they uh, bowed out. But I thought, I don't mind this gym thing. It keeps me focused. I turn up every day. I've got something to look forward to. And my body was starting to respond. It was sort of accidentally. An accidental bodybuilder, I guess. I bigger and bigger and bigger. And he and bigger and, and bigger. So, Mr. World. yeah, that's how I really started. <laughs> and um, one thing led to another. I've heard you say previously it's all about the goal and not the money. Goal setting is a, is, a, is a sort of critical part of both your personal and business life. And I'm wondering, what does goal setting look like when running a $100 million business like Nutrition Warehouse? Yeah, so basically the bodybuilding got me to uh, that pivotal point where goal setting was very important, obviously, without goal setting and bodybuilding, having a plan, uh, you'll never get there. So bodybuilding is the reason I'm probably very good at goal setting and, and having that vision. Um, so, yeah, to get to $100 million, which is uh, we're very proud of today at Nutrition Warehouse, look, it's a, it's a dream come to, 
um, true for myself and and all the team uh, that uh, from where we started. So well, yeah, you start so you started it in your bedroom. You, I, you you become Mr. World. That's done. That part of your life is over. Yes. You're clearly very driven. You can't just sit back on the couch, you know, as a ripped Mr. World, fully tanned, ready to go. Where did the idea for Nutrition Warehouse come from? Well, you know, I'd have to go back to the beginning if you want the full story, but I do it very quickly because it's a long story, is that um, in 2000, I moved to the Gold Coast and uh, was asked to be a personal trainer up here on the Gold Coast. So I moved here, backed up my bags, uh, all my belongings by myself and thought, hey, it's time for a sea change. Bodybuilding's done, moved to the Gold Coast. But I took up a job at a company called Southern Blue selling sports supplements to gyms and health food stores. Back in those days, there wasn't many supplement stores around. There was, there was some, but they were just in the infancy of our opening. And then I basically said, well, there's no supplement stores on the Gold Coast. Ex-champion world bodybuilder, hey, I'm going to create a job for myself realistically, help others achieve their goals and open up a supplement store. I just had one problem, Tim. No I, supplements. I had no, no money. <laughs> no money. That's a problem. That's a so problem. So it was the idea to, to go and lease a shop um, and get in a whole lot of supplements fr- from from third parties, uh, but you needed the dough to do that. Where'd the dough come from? Well, I guess the, f- the first challenge I had was, yeah, how do I get how do I get the dough? And uh, the rest followed Isn't after Mr. that. Isn't Mr. World like rolling in money? No. Oh, no. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. So you had to go and reach uh, out to friends, family, or a venture Friends, campus? family, banks, everybody said no. So I, I went to a good friend of mine at the time who was, who was quite successful and said, hey, I need some money to open up this business. And he went, yep, there you go, 20 grand. That was all I started with. And he said, ah, oh, I'll own 50% of the business as well. My first business mistake, Tim. Uh, so I had no choice. I said, yes, let's do it. Uh, he said, well, you can do it. I'll just, you know, keep doing my job and we'll see how it goes. So, yeah, that's what we, that's what we did. We opened up uh, a competitor to Nutrition Warehouse and uh, for four or five years we started that startup and we got to about five stores and the vision started to change and the personalities started to clash and I decided to leave and, uh, open, and start Nutrition Warehouse. So you gave him the business? I sold him the business. <laughs> My 50% share. So I had a little cash behind me then and um, invested about a third of that and thought I'll, I'll invest a third of that cash into Nutrition Warehouse Startup. And at the time, a lot of people said, you're crazy, you know, this brand's already successful. What are you doing? It's not going to work. And, and I've had other people in my life say that thing, the same thing about bodybuilding. You're skinny, you're short, you can never be a bodybuilder. What's your uh, attitude to these naysayers? I, I hear when I speak to people like you, there's always naysayers in their life and they're either trying to protect that person, they're envious of that person, whatever it may be. What's your view? Do they motivate you when, they, when, when you hear a no? Yes. Is it like, okay. No, depending who they are, I like if it's someone I respect and they say no, it definitely uh, drives me to, uh, and I can use that as fuel to, to fuel the journey. So I think uh, when I separated from the first startup, then yes, definitely there was a, uh, a mix of uh, uh, I'll show you envy and, and, and just drive and determination. When, when did you realise then, that, so you've got Nutrition Warehouse up and running, when did you realise, oh, this was a very smart move, I should have done this earlier? Oh, that's a good question. Probably after around... Three to four years, I'd, I'd say. Was there a lever that you pulled that all of a sudden sent the business skyrocketing upwards? Yes. The, I guess the lever what I pulled was um, the vision was completely different to that of the, the, the previous startup. Uh, I'd done my research. I knew that, well, I didn't know, but I, I envisioned that supplements would go mainstream eventually. Like we're talking uh, early 2000s, so... You know, bodybuilding, sports supplements were still very um, uh, critique to bodybuilding people. It's not a dirty word. I mean, it was. It was a real niche, wasn't it? Like if it was either you're either a bodybuilder and took supplements or you didn't take supplements. Yes, and they looked at us very weird and they still look at us very weird. (laughs) Ever now, Arnold... I mean, if Arnold Schwarzenegger could, couldn't break the mould of, um, you know, like successful bodybuilder to successful uh, entrepreneur, then uh, nobody can. So, um, you ever met Arnie? Yes, I have. Been very fortunate to meet Arnold. Yes. Ah, and how that? Well, it sounds like you've met him more than once. 
Uh, he he run the Arnold Classic out here in Australia with Tony Doherty, and uh, I had the fortune to meet him twice for about three seconds each time. <laughs> No great business insights coming from that little conversation. No, but it was an awe-inspiring moment for, I think, for any uh, bodybuilder. Nutrition Warehouse is going along beautifully. I know naming's very important to you, Grant. It seems a very obvious name to me and very clever how it goes up against Chemist Warehouse, which is the biggest pharmacy chain in Australia. Um, Arriving at the name, was that easy? No. (laughs) So... um I got a hard time in the beginning too because I don't have any business acumen. I left school at year 10. I've never been to university or anything. So uh, a lot of anything I've ever done was really, um, you know, like jack of all trades, master of none. Um, And obviously ensuring that I find great team members along the way. But the name, uh, we were going to be called Worldwide Sports Nutrition in the beginning. My business plan was uh, on a, you know, an A4 basically. The colours, the look, the feel, names scratched out. And uh, one day I was with my uh, dear mum down at Newcastle where I'm born and bred originally and um, I walked past Chemist Warehouse and I went, Nutrition Warehouse? And mum said, oh, that's got a nice ring to it. So uh, when I got home, I uh, checked the domain names and I went, crap, that's available. So uh, trademarked it and registered it and um, Nutrition Warehouse was born. Wow. Who would have thought, eh? It, it seems obvious. R- r- hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's uh, to this day. To this day, I do feel that Nutrition Warehouse, the name, has helped uh, the success of the brand. Speaking of success, you've now got eighty retail stores nationally. Have you ever crunched the numbers to see what impact having just an online business? would do to the bottom line? Because clearly your lease bill, and I'm assuming you're leasing these retail premises around Australia, must be incredibly high. Have you ever looked at that comparison? Yes. I tell my CFO, don't show me some numbers because, you know, I get a bit nervous. (laughs) Um, Look, yes, we could probably just be online only and be successful still because we have a good e-commerce business. However, uh, I didn't start this, um, you know, the mission for us is to help others achieve their own individual health and fitness goals. So you can be anything. You don't have to be a bodybuilder. You can be a runner, a mum that just wants to lose weight, etc. cetera. Uh, now, we can't do that just from online. It's very hard to educate people just from an online perspective. So the, the retail stores are there so uh, people can access Nutrition Warehouse. Our goal is to have a Nutrition Warehouse within 20 kilometres of nearly every Australian. Wow. No, maybe not in the Northern Territory. <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 some vast spaces out there. I would argue that, you know, an online business can, can very easily educate. I mean, you can create, there's, I mean, there's no shortage of content that a business like yours could be creating from YouTube playlists to podcasts to blogs to ebooks to social media. I mean, very, very easy to educate. When you say that your, your mission is to assist others in achieving their personal health and fitness goals, do you make that available as a more one-on-one personal consultation versus hey, just watch this video? Correct. I think that um, what online can't do for us, bricks and mortar can and gives people the experience of having an um, expert advice in store. So basically they can go and see our, um, our team in store and a novice can ask 20 questions and um, we, basically we're there to purpose fit for supplements to fit their goals. So uh, whether it's weight loss, build muscle, etc. You also have a helpline, don't you? So quite personal. Love it. We try and keep it personal, definitely. Grant, have you ever rolled the dice on an idea that if it didn't work, would have closed the business? In the early days, I had a vision for Nutrition Warehouse that was completely different to every other supplement store out there. And most supplement stores were, no disrespect to bodybuilders, but mainly bodybuilders eating their meals behind the counter, um, you know, in a very tiny store um, with not much service. So um, I wanted to build the model of Nutrition Warehouse, uh, you know, big box retail, 200 squares, all the world's best brands, the best customer service that uh, we, we could have, educate people. Now, the first two stores that opened up, uh, Underwood and Greenslopes, were very much smaller stores because I guess I was still a little bit um, concerned about spending all, all the cash I had on one big store. So when I opened up at Ashmore in Gold Coast, that was a 300 square meter store. And I was standing at the front going, whoa, if this one doesn't work, then this could end the business before we even get started. 
But if this vision of this size doesn't work, then my vision isn't going to work. So I took the risk and um, the first month we beat both those other stores combined in revenue. So it took off, it made me smile uh, and it gave us the confidence to accelerate the brand, um, you know, from one, from three stores in to... Why, why do you think it plus. took off? Good location? Um, Gold Coast is obviously a pinnacle for uh, health and fitness and everyone loves to be health and fitness on the Gold Coast. Good location, uh, wow factor. We, you know, you walked into that Ashmore store. It was Australia's largest supplement store at the time. Probably still it, one, one of the top ones still. And even I was like, wow. You know, you walk in, it was packed to the rafters of every brand, every product, uh, every health supplement you can think of. And I think you could just see customers' faces as they walked in and went, what is this? And and it just drew people to the brand. And um, word just got out. And uh, it just... That store was doing uh, immense numbers after six months. Grant, you missed a world. Uh, you've got some pretty good credentials behind you. You've built a brand without putting your face to it. But I'm wondering why haven't you put your face to it or your body to it? Surely that would have been um, an asset that no one else owns, an incredible point of difference, and it would have cost you nothing. True, true. And look, in the early days, uh, a lot of you know uh, business people had a lot a lot more experience than I did, did suggest that, you know, I should be using uh, my name to grow the business. Um, but part of me felt that that was wrong because I wanted Nutrition Warehouse not to be a place for bodybuilders. I wanted it to be a place for all walks of life. And I didn't want to have my face up there and, you know, my massive arms and chest and scaring customers away. I wanted to be a place where people felt comfortable to come. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, you want to be. And has that worked? Is it still, is it very much a place where people go for supplements beyond things to bulk up or tone up? Have you Absolutely. managed to sort of break that 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 mould? Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, we have, um, you know, anyone from the teenager who wants to obviously get larger and put on weight, to, to the fledging bodybuilder, to the mum and dad, to the grandmother or the grandfather that come in by supplements office for all their individual health and fitness needs. So I think we've done a really good job uh, in ensuring that uh, people feel confident and um, don't feel intimidated is probably the right word coming into our stores. Uh, Grant, I was, in previous life, I was the marketing manager for Flight Centre, uh, which was the, is the cheapest travel agency in Australia. And in my experience there, it was very expensive to be the cheapest. I had a very, very big advertising budget to remind people constantly, the <clears throat> you know, lowest price guarantee, all that kind of stuff. Do you find that it's expensive being one of the cheapest in your category? Ah, very good question, Tim. Um, look, as we've scaled, no, because obviously better buying power, we have our own brands now that are entwined into Nutrition Warehouse, so obviously more margin. Uh, initially, that was one of the core uh, aspects of the brand and the plan to obviously be uh, not just have the presence, the brands, but also have a better price point than our competitors. And initially, yes, margins were low and we used to get criticised that a lot by our um, suppliers and by other retailers, like we're too cheap, we're going to ruin the market, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure Chemist Warehouse have run into this as also. Uh, as we scaled but and more buying power, introduced our own brands into the mix, uh, our margins have risen and um, now that that has turned around for us. So initially, yes, but in the end, it's a win. You have a key value of doing more with less, which makes a lot of sense. As a startup, you know, you want to squeeze every bit of blood out of that stone. You're now a $100 million plus company. In fact, not only do you have 80 nutrition warehouse stores, you've got supplement warehouse stores as well, which takes you up to 93 stores. Things are okay. I imagine money is a little bit more available these days than it was. Are you still trying to do every step of the way more with less? Look, yes, it is one of our core values to do more with less. And what we try to say to people is we don't have to have the, you know, if you come to support office now, it's offices. Is it beautiful? No. Does it have desks? Yes. Are they beautiful desks? No. You know, do we have to have $1,000 desks or can we just have desks from IKEA? They do the same thing at the end of the day, Tim. Let's invest the money into our customers, into the brand, into making it feel, look better, a better value for the, for the customer rather than ourselves. Now, is that going to change in the future? 
A little bit, yes, as we bring on more and more team members, especially ones that have come from a from Flight Centre, for instance, which we have now. They are used to a different look and feel and, and they want a little bit more. And I guess things have changed a little bit where we feel that the team does deserve more as well as the customer. So things are slowly changing in that respect. But me, at my personal level, and the people who know me, I like to do more with less. We all know business isn't easy, Grant, and we. last thing I want my audience to think is, oh, you interview all these big names, big brands, and it was just, you know, everything they did turned to gold, the Midas touch. I am sure there has been a moment where you found yourself either in the fetal position in the corner rocking back and forth or at least on your knees going, oh, my God, what have we done? Is there a moment you can reflect on besides the rolling of the dice earlier around the Ashmore store? But like a, you know, because you're a guy, you're, as you said, year 10 qualification, no business training. You must have felt out of your depth at some point. Oh, to about an hour ago, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Every day. <laughs> every day. Every day. Yes. Um, Give us an example of that and, and tell us your mindset around navigating your way through. Probably where we um, could have done a better job is basically not hiring quick enough. Like up until four years ago, realistically, there was myself and a couple of others ahead of marketing doing it ourselves. So we didn't hire uh, quick enough, I feel, is one of our judgments. I think we could have been a lot further along if we'd hire, hired earlier. So the key, key people in the yeah, in, uh, okay. in operations. Trying to save money, but in the end it comes back and bites you on the ass. Correct, yes. Yep. If we hired a key people quicker, we probably would have been further along. That was probably at, at, to the detriment of the business. Very hard to measure now, Tim, because as you said, we are at $100 million proudly plus. So that's, uh, did it hurt? Probably. We're not sure how much. Oh, well. Um, you're okay, mate. You're not fading away. Well, you are actually, because when you're a Mr. <laughs> you're a lot less of a man than when you were Mr. World. So sort of you are fading away, but in a good way. Oh, my, Tell me, my um, ego, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. With all respect. Uh, and the other one was probably just, um, yeah, warehousing. So uh, we're at capacity now with warehousing and uh, we, we probably should have jumped into a new warehouse about three years ago. Again, do more with less. We thought we could work through it. COVID hit. Online is, is uh, up at the moment and it's really put us um, at, uh, at capacity. So we are looking to move into a warehouse now, but that's probably still about two years away because it's a build. Grant, I mentioned uh, sponsorship for a brand like Nutrition Warehouse, both as a marketing, ch- as a channel to market to get your brand out there, is quite effective. And also, I imagine there'd be many athletes and others knocking on your door seeking sponsorship. How do you manage all that? With a good team. But uh, look, our, um, our marketing's been fairly simple uh, up until recently. Most of our uh, marketing strategy was through community. So we would open in, uh, you know, uh, you know, Melbourne or Sydney or anywhere, uh, Toowoomba, and the team in that store would drive the marketing through community. Local area marketing, you know, like um, getting out to the gyms, doing taste testings, uh, talking to the local PTs, going to the mum, mum and dad's um, parenting group and um, educating them on the, uh, the uses of supplementation to help them in whatever they're trying to achieve. So we found that that um, is a low-cost, effective way to drive revenue, whilst there is another part of it, which is obviously the, na- the national level, which is obviously driving uh, the brand. Mm-hmm. Advertising, TV, radio, outdoor, uh, all the usual well, suspects. We've never done TV, and we rarely do radio, Tim, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's mainly digital these days. Obviously, paid ads, EDMs, SNS. But yeah, never say never, I say. Never say never, absolutely. Where do you hope Nutrition Warehouse is in five years' time, Grant? I know that's a crazy question because five years is so long in this world that's full of short attention spans and, you know, quickly changing circumstances. Um, look, I just hope that we can continue to, to, um, to give back to the community, help grow uh, the brand and educate everybody about supplementation, its benefits, vitamins, minerals, uh, what protein can do. That's really the goal. Obviously, we want to keep growing as a brand and a business. Uh, and it's nice to open up, you know, we're, I think the last podcast and I'm, we're at 66 stores, now we're at 85, I believe. Uh, it's nice to keep growing the stores. Uh, however, it's uh, it's not about the store numbers. It's about, uh, it's basically 
for me and the team, it's more about what we can do to help the community, which will then build those revenue numbers. That's awesome, buddy. Hey, well done. Well done on getting to Mr. World, number one, and <laughs> number two, getting Nutrition Warehouse to where it is today and uh, doing it all from the beautiful Gold Coast. What a great place to grow a business. Mate, when I come, I never left and I don't think I'll be leaving. It's beautiful. Grant Mayo, Nutrition Warehouse. Thanks for sharing, buddy. Pleasure. Thanks, Tim. There you go, team. Mr. World, Grant Mayo, who also happens to own Nutrition Warehouse. What a great fellow. There's a lot to love about the way he runs his empire, including his view on risk-taking. I especially love the fact that he's all about enjoying the journey as opposed to being obsessively focused on reaching the destinations. You know, sometimes us business owners need to stop, smell the coffee, look up, have a look where we are and how far we've got. Do that now. What grabbed your attention from that chat with Grant or Kenton? Call the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480 015 150. Hey, I do hope you enjoyed this final instalment of this series showcasing amazing businesses in regional Queensland. And if you'd like me to bring this roadshow to your part of regional Australia, send me an email, tim at timreid.com.au, letting me know, and I will pass it on to the powers that be at Listener and see if we can make it happen. Now, like I said at the top of this episode, next week we're back to normal programming with some just awesome guests between now and Christmas. If you'd love to know how and why to create helpful marketing, then grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're loving the Small Business Big Marketing podcast, and if you got this far, you probably are, then you'll find 573 more episodes on your favourite podcast app. As has been the case for the past 12 years, this podcast is presented by me, Timbo Reid. The tune's provided by Lockie Dolly who's going to join us before Christmas again to tell us how he has become the keyboard player for Roger Waters' Pink Floyd. And all this marketing melodrama is made sense of by producer Romy Scher. Until next time, team, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now. Listener.